<clears throat> so anyway, we're just uh, we have a lot to be thankful for, and I'm glad to, glad to be back today. There was a, there once was a, a, a very famous queen who went to visit a very wealthy king. She had heard so much about this king that she couldn't even believe that it could be true, the, the nature in which he lived his life. She had heard about his great architectural skills. She had heard about his immense wealth. She had heard about the palace, the, the house that he had built for himself. She had heard about all these things, and she couldn't believe that anyone could be as wealthy as the reports were about who this king was. And so she, she wanted to check it out. She, the only thing that held her in sight, excitement and check was that, hey, this couldn't be true. So what she did was she went to visit this king and she had her doubts and she thought that nobody could be as wise as the reports were. Nobody could be as wealthy as he is. I've got to go and see for, for myself whether these reports are true. So she, she went about on her journey and she left Ethiopia and she went to Palestine to see the throne and she met with him and she asked him all kind of questions. And she listened to the response at the wisdom that this man had, and she was amazed by all of it. And she looked around, and she ate at his table, and she saw his waiters, and she saw everything that was going on. And she couldn't believe that the reports could be this true. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 10, because this is how she responded to what's going on. Do you hear somebody else talking in here? Oh, good, okay. I thought maybe I got injured on that horse, I, you know. <laughs> Can we do something about that? Steve, is, there any, is it possible? Did they cross the wires again? Can you still hear it? Can you still hear it? I mean, you can hear me. Can you still hear that? I think... I know, some of you are going, I, we couldn't even hear you. I mean, it's like... No, it wasn't Echo. It was, it was them talking next door. Is that better? Oh, we're going to have to deal with it, so that's too bad. This would be great. Some of you can't pay attention to one person, yet alone two. Like, You're going to be trying to take notes for both. Oh, that's pretty good over there. Did you? I don't know. I just wish they were in Ecclesiastes. It would be a lot more fun. But First Kings chapter 10. Anyway, this is what this very famous queen found out about this very wealthy king. And the interesting thing was, I mean, here, here's a, a gal is just amazed by what she saw. And in verse 4 of chapter 10, 1 Kings, it says, When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of, Sol of Solomon, the house he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I had heard in my own land about your words and about your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of it was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I had heard. How blessed are your men, how blessed are those who serve you and stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. It's interesting, I want you to take note of the next verse because it's going to apply to what we're talking about. She said, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And she didn't know how to handle it. I mean, what she saw was absolutely, I mean, in our language, she was blown away by the wealth and the wisdom that she saw displayed. She didn't know how to, how to handle it. So you know what she did? This is great. So in verse 10, she gave the king 120 talents of gold. 
and very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the Queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. She didn't know how to respond to it. He had so much wealth. It was, he was immensely wealthy. His opulent lifestyle blew her away. And so the only way that she could respond to it was, give him more. Here, here's some more. I, I mean, obviously you don't need it, but I don't know how to respond to it. I want to give you some more. And that's what she did. He was extremely wealthy. And the point of all of it is very simple. The guy was filthy rich. When you get right down to it, he had more money and more possessions materially than anybody in here could ever imagine. I, I, you know, I don't know if you know somebody that has big bucks or you, know, you think that they do, but they don't have anything like Solomon had. And I know some of us are, are motivated to become someone that has big bucks and a lot of things, but you'll never achieve what Solomon had. So the problem that we have to deal with is not only do we have to listen to two people speak at one time, but the problem we have to deal with is Solomon, when he writes about wealth, knows what he's talking about. See, isn't it the truth? If you want to find out what it's like to be filthy rich, then you talk to the person who you think is filthy rich, and you ask them for some insight as to what it's really like to be as wealthy as they are. So when he starts talking about wealth, we have to stop and take notes. Because there are a million books in bookstores today that deal with wealth. How to get it, what to do when you have it, where to invest it, how to set it up, how to, what percentage you should have in this kind of investment, and how much should be liquid, and how much should be set aside, and how much should be in real estate, and how much should be in stocks. And There are a myriad of books that will help you try to deal with, number one, if you don't have any, to get it. And number two, once you think you have it, how to hang on to it and then how to multiply it. That's basically what I'll summarize into those three categories. Well, Solomon is going to teach us a lot about wealth. So if you have your Bibles with the Eternity Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, and listen to the words of Solomon as he discusses what he observed about wealth. And I'll guarantee you that it's totally different than any book that you're going to buy in any bookstore that has to do with how to handle wealth or some of the pitfalls that go along with being wealthy. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Basically, this, and I know there's no one in here who would admit to it, but basically what we're going to deal with this morning is for those of us who are in a category where we tend toward being materialistic. We want more and more material things, and we'd like more and more money, and we'd like all the things that go along with it. And frankly, it's going to deal with greed and lack of contentment. And we live in a society in an area that we're in that really promotes that, let's face it. Everyone that's in here, if I ask you, are you content right now? Are you satisfied with what you have? There's always another goal. There's always more that you can get. There's always something newer and more improved and bigger and better that you're looking at. And the problem is Solomon's going to deal with us right where we're at. We are materialistic people, and there's, we can't get around that. And so he's going to try to deal with this right where we're at. And the whole topic of greed and materialism in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he's going to share with us what he sees as the problem with wealth. The problem with wealth. We'll pick it up at verse 8. Solomon says, If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. 
there's a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owners to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. And this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This, too, is a gift from God. For he will not often consider the years of his life, because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. What's the problem with wealth? What has Solomon observed, and how can we contrast that to what we're being told on a day-to-day -day basis? Let's just ask God to bless our time. Our Father, we're a society that uh, has a fixation for wealth and for money and for material things. Help us to see the truth of your word as Solomon, the wealthiest man who ever existed on the face of the earth, observed the problems that came along with wealth. Help us to see the truth of your word and help us to see specifically what you want to teach us about money. The money that you've entrusted to us, what are you trying to teach us? What are you trying to warn us about? And God, we just pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that he will teach us your truth, that he will show us the areas of our life that need to become more pleasing to you. And we just thank you uh, for your word. We just thank you that you give us the power to be obedient if we choose to do so. We just ask you now to bless our time in Christ's name. Amen. The problems as we go through this is, you know, one of the things that Solomon noticed is that there are four problems that he observed. And now remember where he's coming from. Here was a man who was the wealthiest man who ever lived. He knew money backwards and forwards. He understood exactly what he was talking about. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God used his life and the things that were going on in it to help us to see the truth about what's happening here. And he warns us about four things. There are four problems that go along with wealth and see if this isn't true and see if you can't identify with it. And uh, the first thing that he noticed was, and we'll just use it as an outline, but you can go down through it and even underline it yourself. He says, if you see, and since you will see it, since you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be shocked at the sight of it, for one official watches over another, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. So he goes down through and he's going to point out three symptoms or th three symptoms of moral defilement. How can money cause us to become morally bankrupt before God? That's really the question. How can it cause us to stumble and cause us a problem? And he goes through this and he's going to take them one at a time, but you can see them as you go through, even in your own text, you can underline what he's talking about. And the first symptom of moral defilement, he says, is punishing the poor. Punishing the poor. In James 2, 5, 15 and 16, God warns us about saying to people who are in need, oh, hey, be filled and be warm, you know, go, go ahead, and, and uh, yet never once reach to meet their needs. As Americans, and you see it more when you travel abroad, and uh, we, we begin to realize what a, a tremendous standard of living that we have in America. Not just in America, but particularly in Southern California, because you don't have to travel too far across our country to see the drastic difference in the standard of living that we experience and enjoy as opposed to the rest of the United States. 
we're in a, in, a, in a situation where culturally we are becoming insulated from the realities of what God's teaching in his word and we're not exposed enough to people who are less fortunate than we are. The question I have as I was dealing with this is how do you punish the poor? Well, the way that God says you punish the poor is that you don't identify and meet the needs that they have in their life. That's oppression of the poor. See, because we justify it and rationalize it. After all, you know, if they wanted to work, they could work. And if they work, they could have what we have. Or if they wanted to, they could be educated. And if they went to school, then they'd enjoy the same benefits that we do. And so we become callous toward the needs of those who are less fortunate than we are. And the way that we handle that is we isolate ourselves and insulate ourselves from them because we don't be, want to be around them because we're uncomfortable around people who have less than we do. So we begin a symptom of, of moral defilement, according to Solomon. As we become more wealthy, the temptation is going to be to isolate ourselves from those who have needs, and we don't want to meet those needs. Give you an example. Except for an isolated few, situ uh, few situations, isn't it true that the majority of your friends are in the same economic uh, bracket that you're in? Isn't that the, who you like to hang around and do things with? Because after all, if you have friends who make less money than you do and you want to plan a vacation, they can crimp your style a little bit. Or if you want to go out to dinner, you might have to go to a different type of restaurant because they can't afford to go to the restaurant that you like. And on and on and on it goes. So what we try to do is, and then we say they have a problem because we haven't changed. We haven't changed, but they've changed. They don't feel comfortable around us, and we don't, you know, we try to, to, uh, to bridge that gap. But they don't want to be around us, so I guess we're just going to have to find friends who are in the same economic situation as we're in. Because it's a lot more comfortable there, isn't it? You've been there. You know what it is. You know what it's like. See, so the problem is, you know, none of us want to say that we're, we're defiled morally. None of us want to say that we're morally bankrupt. But the truth of the matter is, one of the dangers or the symptoms of moral defilement is that we're not reaching the needs of those who are less fortunate than we are. So you can tell me anything that you want to tell me. You can say, oh, that's not me. I don't have a problem with that. But my question that, that keeps coming back to me over and over again, if that's not true of your life, if you really don't have a problem in that area, then what are you doing in a practical way? How are you demonstrating that you have a burden for those who are less fortunate? How do you demonstrate it? In a very practical way. See, otherwise, we're, just, we're going back to the same situation that James warns us about, and we're just saying, hey, uh, be warm and be filled. Go, go, your, go your way. Don't cramp my style. Don't make me feel guilty. After all, I do work hard for what I have. And if you did the same, you could have the same thing. Do you see how we get? See how subtle it is? We don't really see that. It's, it's subtle, and that's the way deception always is. So God slams us and says, hey, wait a minute. Well, good, I'm glad you don't have a problem with the wealth. I'm glad that you're not morally bankrupt because of it. I'm glad you can handle it. Oh, would you, would you tell me again how you're demonstrating that truth? Whose needs are you meeting that are less fortunate than you? Are you helping the hungry? Are, are you helping the homeless? Are you helping those who don't have what you have? How do you demonstrate it? See, otherwise what Solomon said, here's what I found out about wealth. I just found out the more that you have, the more isolated and insulated you become from the rest of the world who has needs. I find that I just start hanging out with kings. I find out that Queen of Sheba comes to visit me and she gives me more. I find out that I'm not really in touch or in tune with the needs of, of the people around me because I'm insulated from all of it. And I don't want to expose myself because I don't want to go down into the, into the town. Excuse me. I don't want to go down into the town. I don't want to visit the people. 
You know where God really nailed me on this was we were on a vacation once in Puerto Vallarta. Have you ever been on a vacation in Mexico? Did you ever feel uncomfortable about what you were doing? I hope. Is it pathetic or not that they take you out on a horseback ride through some of the villages and the, and the poor little kids come out and beg money from you? And you're sitting there thinking, oh man, I can't wait to get to the hotel, back to the hotel and eat, you know? And it's just, I mean, it was like God really said, man, you know what? <laughs> Doesn't it bother you a little bit? Just a little bit? Hey, I want you to enjoy what I've given you, I want, and I want you to enjoy life. But I also want you to be exposed to those who are less fortunate because they have needs. So you know why God reaches people like that? He reaches them through us who He's blessed as we reach out and demonstrate the love of Christ to them. See, that's why God reaches people who are less fortunate than we are. But see, what Solomon said is, hey, one of the symptoms that I saw, one of the signs of, the, of this was, hey, <laughs> we begin to punish the poor. We don't recognize their needs. And so we punish them because of that. And the second thing that he said was that we pervert justice and righteousness. The second symptom of moral defilement is the perverting of justice and righteousness. And man, how true is this? It is, it is the symptom is, and remember I told you to pay attention to 1 Kings 10.9. You know what the Queen of Sheba said to Solomon? She said, God has made you king over all of Israel. Why? So that you can do justice and righteousness. The whole purpose of his position was to administer justice and righteousness. But the truth of the matter is those with wealth begin to distort things a little bit. They begin to get to the point where, hey, I've got money, I've got influence, and I've got power, and therefore I can manipulate the system to somehow benefit me. We see it all around us. We see the manipulation and, and the perversion of justice and righteousness all the time. Those who have money want to keep those who don't from having it too. And the way they do it is they pervert the system. They, get, they get to the point where they're above and beyond the law. You know what I mean? It's like they can buy that position because they have the influence. And they all protect one another because of the influence all of them have. And it all revolves around wealth. They all have wealth. And if you have wealth, you have power. And if you have power, you have the ability to pervert justice and righteousness. You can manipulate it any way that you want to manipulate it, from uh, airport guards to border patrol crossing guards to policemen to uh, uh, fancy bureaucrats in an office. Everyone has the ability, when you have power, to manipulate and pervert justice and righteousness. Solomon said, you know what I found out? Man, people that have money have the ability to do that. They can do that. And according to the, uh, to the Lord Jesus, that where our money, where, where our, where, what we do with our money reveals where our heart really is. So if we use money to buy favors, if we use money to buy and manipulate uh, uh, our position or become above the law, what the Lord warns us about is, hey, there's, a, uh, there's moral defilement. There's moral bankruptcy. There's ethics, integrity out the window. Because why? Because now you have money and you can do it. This is what one man wrote about that scene of, of each other protecting one another. It says, the glimpse of that vista of officials suggests possibilities of evasiveness to baffle the citizen who presses for his rights. He can be endlessly obstructed and deflected. As for moral responsibility, it can be sidestepped with equal facility. Every officer can blame the system, while the ultimate authorities hold sway at an infinite distance from the lives they affect. Giving people the runaround, God says, is a symptom of moral defilement. Not dealing with them, passing the buck along one, one to another, one to another, so that you never have to deal with the needs of those who, who you're you know, messing around with. It's a symptom of moral defilement. The third thing that Solomon saw was one of the most obvious ones was profiting from your position. 
we have a tendency because of the position that we're in to profit from those underneath us. Now where this really hits home, I guess the higher up you get, the more you'll be tempted to withhold from those to whom it's due. You know how it is. You've seen it. You've probably even experienced it in a work environment where someone along the line steals your idea. They step on you and they use it to further themselves and they get the promotion and they get the, the income that goes along with it. And meanwhile, they know that you stole the idea. See, and the higher up you get, the easier it is not to give credit where credit is due. That's a perversion. It's profiting from the position. It's using the position that God's entrusted to you for your own betterment and for your own fulfillment, and ultimately it's always for more money. You sell out for more money. Solomon saw that. He saw how people use that as a means to get ahead. See, and it happens, you know, and the danger to employers, from what I've seen and observed myself, is that, um, well, there's a danger for employers not to see the value of their employee, to use their employees to meet their own goals. And if they don't fall in line, then you just can recycle them because there's always somebody out there who's desperate for a job and they can always hold that over someone's head. So what you do is you use your employees to get where you want to be in life, not being concerned for what their needs are. See, that's the way that happens, profiting from your position. And, uh, you know, the problem is that you may throw them a bone every once in a while, but let's face it, you're keeping the real meat for yourself. And that's what God warns us about. We've got to be very careful. In fact, you know, I, turn to Proverbs chapter 11. I want to show you something that stands out and really deals with this whole issue of uh, profiting from your position. And it's very easy to find yourself in a situation that you can do it because it's easy to justify anything. You know, I'm at risk. I'm taking all the risks. I'm the guy that has, you know, this on the line and that on the line. And, you know, after all, I deserve all these benefits and I deserve the perks. And, you know, and you hear it all the time and it's easy to justify it and it's easy to rationalize it. And I don't have a problem with any of that. And all of that, to some degree, is true. But where you've got to, to, you've got to wrestle with is, okay, where am I going beyond what God would have me do? See, where am I becoming insensitive? Where am I becoming deceived by my goals and my aspirations and my wants materially to the point where I'm not willing to look at the needs of those who I'm responsible for to the Lord because I don't want them to cut in on my goals? See, there's a real balance there, and, and we've got to be very careful. And uh, while all the, all the sides may be true, you know in your heart as you come before the Lord whether what you're doing is right or not. And God will deal with you on that. And he'll, and he'll be the one who will avenge that if it's not true. In fact, look at Proverbs 11. Look at verse 24. It says, There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, but results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, the blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. You follow that? I, li I like the way God puts it. The generous man will be prosperous, and he, he who waters will himself be watered. You know, God warns that if we withhold that which is justly due, it will result only in more want. Isn't that vivid? Those who withhold from those whom it's due, it's never enough for them. They're never satisfied, and there's always more reason to withhold that which is due again. And so once we begin that pattern of withholding from those who is due, there's not a satisfaction in our life. And so we're always going to want more and more and more because we're not satisfied from that what we're withholding. 
God says the generous man, hey, if you're generous to the point where you don't even understand the generosity, but you know it's in, in, a, in compliance and obedience with the word of God, God says, hey, you know what? You be generous and I'll take care of your wants and your desires and I'll give you a contentment and peace that you don't, you're never going to experience doing it another way. Because wealth, as Solomon saw, is so deceptive that the feeling is the more that I have, the more that I hold on, and the less I have to give away, the more I'll be satisfied. And God says, nah, got it wrong. It's the opposite. The more that you give away, the more that you meet the needs of others, the more you're willing to give away that, start giving the, the, some of the meat with the bone from now on, the more you're willing to do that, guess what? Then you're going to be satisfied. You're going to have a contentment you never had. And you're going, to, you're going to have what you're looking for, but you're going to find it my way and not your way. See, Solomon knew that. Here's a guy that had all the money in the world, but there are people out there who profit from their position. Let's face it. I ran across an article about the, um, this is a, the couple in Romania. How do you say their name? I just, Chisescu, right? Chalcescu. All right, M Mr. and Mrs. C. You know, I struggle with this, and I, I went through this thing. It took me longer to try to pronounce her name, which I could never do, than put all the rest of this stuff together. But but um, said to many Europeans, uh, Mr. and Mrs. C., the bloody tyrants of Romania, uh, who were executed on uh, Christmas Day, was a puzzlement, quote, particularly in his, in his relationship with Israel. Unlike leaders of other Eastern European nations, he refused to sever relations with their Jew Jewish state in the aftermath in a 1967 six-day Arab-Israeli war. He continued to facilitate the emigration of Soviet and Romanian Jews to Israel, and it repeatedly has been suggested that it was uh, C who arranged for Romania to act as a go-between in the recent sale of I Iranian oil to Israel. The explanation for this relative kindness to the Jews, it turns out, is money. According to an Israeli newspaper, Ceausescu was paid $5,000 to $7,000 for each Jew granted a visa to leave Romania a total sum estimated at between 50 to 60 million dollars. The Jerusalem Post reports the payment was made in U.S. dollars packed in suitcases and the Swiss daily La Tribune de Genevieve disclosed that uh, the Ceausescu family was believed to have 400 million dollars worth of gold hidden in Zurich. <laughs> Profiting from your position? See, but we can't relate to those numbers, but I just wonder at what scale you do it. Listen to Proverbs 22:16 says, If this isn't prophetic, nothing is. He who oppresses the poor to make much for himself or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Proverbs 22, 22 and 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Boy, is that words of truth? Are you morally bankrupt because of the wealth that God has blessed you with? Do you punish the poor or do you meet their needs? Do you pervert justice and righteousness and every opportunity? Or do you profit from your position? God, God warns all of us at this point to stop doing that, to trust Him and to turn to His ways and not fall trapped to what we would fall trapped to, and that is to use the wealth somehow or another to manipulate a better position for us. The second thing that Solomon observed was that wealth can cause great disappointment, tremendous disappointment. It says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? It says, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. 
You know, God has a lot to say about wealth. One of the things that we have to stop and consider is that a person who has the wealth that Solomon has, when he talks about it, he knows what's going on. And for any of us who believe that more wealth, more money, is going to bring some sense of satisfaction, then the simple truth is you haven't lived long enough to see the difference. What God says is true. More wealth will not give you any more satisfaction in your life. And in fact, what will happen is you're in for the greatest disappointment of your life. Because if you think money is going to be satisfying when you finally get to that point, if you ever do, you're going to be more dis disappointed than anything you've ever experienced in your life. Wealth will cause tremendous disappointment. And the problem is, before I go any further, there is no condemnation in the Bible to those who possess wealth. Let's get something straight. There's no condemnation. You don't need to feel guilty about if God has blessed you to where you possess wealth. God's concerned with how you got it and is concerned with what you do with it after you do have it. That's it. God never is, condemns anybody who possesses wealth. But there's a greater accountability to much is given, much is, is expected. And uh, so there's a great accountability to those of us who God has blessed uh, with wealth. But he doesn't say that the possession of wealth is a problem. What he does say is those who love money will never be satisfied. Love money. Got to have it. Got to have more of it. He says you're not going to be satisfied with it, and you're not going to, and he who loves abundance with its income, look what he says, this too is vanity. The love of money is obviously the root of all evils, but the love of money will never bring satisfaction in your life. The desire for more money, the desire for more material possessions will never bring any satisfaction in your life. It was interesting. I got a great illustration of it. I was watching an old movie, and um, there was an American, and there were some local people, and it was in South America, and they had found and they discovered some emeralds that were on a coffee uh, plantation. Well, it wasn't even a plantation. It, it was a landowner who had, for generations in his family, had uh, picked coffee beans from this particular um, piece of land that they had. And anyway, they find out that there were emeralds on this property. And so the American and the local people went up and they made them a deal. We'll pick your coffee beans if you let us take all the emeralds that are on your property. We'll kind of make a deal with you. And the, the old landowner that owned the property and his families that owned it before that said, hey, that's fine with me. I don't really care about the emeralds. And so they went through and they were doing this. And they were, a lot of trouble was being, uh, uh, came up because of it. And so the American said, hey, um, you know, why don't you keep some of the emeralds for yourself? He said, because, well, and the guy said, well, you know, Senor, emeralds are a major problem for me. Because if the government finds out that the emeralds are on my property, they'll come and take my property and land from me. And this is our family's property, and it had been for generations. And they're going to come and take it from them. And the American, typical American, said, hey, but you can buy more land. You can buy, much, you can buy more land than you've ever had in your life with the value of the emeralds that are on your property. And he looked at him and said, and he said Senor, more, more, more. He said, you know, the color of the devil on my land is green. Talking about the color of the emeralds. And he, and he stopped and he thought for a minute and he looked at the American. He goes, I don't know what the color of the devil is in your country, but the color of the devil here is green. The American stopped and he thought for a second. You know what he said? Senor, the color of the devil in my country is green too. Not green with emeralds, but green with money. See? The color of the devil is green. And the point that he was making, I mean, you can't get away from it. And that is that our answer to everything is, but I can have more. Don't you understand? You can have more. 
You can take all the emeralds and you can sell and you can have more of everything that you'd ever want. And the man went, I don't need more. What do I need more for? I got all that I need. And I'm content and I'm satisfied. And this is causing me nothing, nothing but grief. And see, and does it illustrate perfectly what Solomon is saying? Those of us who are greedy and want more, you will never be satisfied. You're in for great disappointment. And we live in a culture that expands upon how, we, hey, more is the answer. I love this. It says that, you know what? You know what happens when you get more? When good things increase, those who consume them increase. You ever notice that? I like what one guy writes. He says, why do they increase? Because everybody likes somebody who has a pile of bucks. Everybody wants to hang around somebody who has a lot of dough and big bucks. He said, when, one, when man's possessions increase, it seems there's a corresponding increase in the number of parasites who live off of him. Management consultants, tax advisors, accountants, lawyers, household employees, and sponging relatives. Hey, I don't know which one you are, but if you stop and think about it, and I don't know who's, who's attacking you, but you know what the amazing thing is? Watch Buster Douglas. No one knew who Buster Douglas was. 42 to 1 long shot. He had three people go with him into the ring. And it was like, and they were friends that had been around him for a long time, you know. And so now what's the next time you see Buster Douglas? He's going to have 62 million people. And you know what the irony is? Stop and think about this. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Here's a guy that's the champion of the world. He knocked out Mike Tyson. No one can knock out Mike Tyson. Buster Douglas is quite a dude. He knocks out Mike Tyson. He floors Mike Tyson. Now listen to this. Buster Douglas, the next time you see him, is going to need eight bodyguards. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you stop and think about stuff like that, but I just kind of go, what? Here's a guy that knocked out Mike Tyson. Who needs eight bodyguards if he can knock out Mike Tyson? He can knock out every one of his bodyguards. Who needs bodyguards? Somehow or another, he's going to need bodyguards. And he's going to need management consultant. He's going to need a tax advisor. He's going to need more accountants. He's going to need lawyers. Household employees, well, sponging relatives, count on that. Um, <laughs> But it's like, isn't that, you know what, in the, and here's the irony of it. Did you notice this? Look what it says. <laughs> so what's the advantage to their owners except to look on? It's like the more money you make and you see all these people crowd into your life, you just stand back and you kind of go like this. <laughs> How did this happen? And they're all sending you bills, you know, they, this one needs an invoice for this and this one needs an invoice. And it's kind of like you just go like this. Here, why don't you guys, you, you, why don't you just all take this <laughs> and you guys can just work on it. And I'm going to go over here and I'm going to enjoy what I was doing before I had all this money that messed it up. See, that's what happens. Sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. The full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. You know, God says the, ca the cause of insomnia is wealth. Laying in bed, wondering if that investment that you did is going to do what it's supposed to do. Wondering if it's all going to go belly up. Wondering if you're going to lose it all. Wondering if where you put your pension money is still going to be around when it's time to retire. Oh, worrying, worrying about everything. You know what? And you can't sleep with any of it. And you know what Solomon says? It's all because you wanted to have wealth. Now you got it. Now you can lay in bed and you can worry about it for the rest of your life. There it is. That's what we're all looking for. That's what we all want. Proverbs 19, 4-7 7 says, Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. Just go around as a joke sometime and tell everybody, your business just went under, you lost all your money. <laughs> and find out if they call you like in the next week or so, you know, if you ever see them again. Wouldn't that be great? Hey, that's, sometimes that's what it takes to find out who your friends really are. Wealth adds many friends. A poor man is separated from his friends. You lose it all, you lose all your friends. You didn't really have friends according to God's standard of friendship. False witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. Many will entreat the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. 
All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. Hey, but remember when I, I, I helped you? <laughs> but gone. Gone, baby. See, that's the problem with wealth. You talk about great disappointment. Solomon saw it. You don't have wealth anymore. Take a look around you. You're going to be one of the loneliest people around. You're only going to have a handful of people. You know, those three people that went into the ring with Buster Douglas in Tokyo, those three people are going to get lost in the shuffle. I, I, unless, he, unless he lines up with the Word of God, unless he has godly counsel and wisdom, those people are going to be gone. Somewhere along the line, they're going to be gone. And when Buster's old and busted and he doesn't have anything left, those three people will be back. That's the way it is. That's what Solomon said. He also said there's another problem that goes along with wealth, and that's it causes emotional damage. And you can understand that it doesn't take a genius to figure it out at this point. Emotional damage. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owners to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had, nothing, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand, and this is also a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. One of the greatest causes of damage in our lives is when we worry about how long we're going to hang on to it. The emotional damage that comes, like you said, great vexation, sickness, and anger. Man, how many of us have ulcers because we're worried about, quote, our money? How many of us are angry because somebody shortchanged us and they weren't fair to us and they got us into a deal and they weren't upfront about it and they took advantage of us? How, how many of us just sweat because of all these things? He says, you know what I saw? Emotional damage is a result of those who hoard wealth for their own purposes. He says, Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Remember the parable about the guy who had the farms? And he had all the, all the, the, the he was reaping the harvest of all the things that he had. And so he said, I'm going to build another barn. I'm going to build a bigger barn and I'm going to store it all up. And he kept hoarding all of it and he kept saving all of it. Because after all, you never know how long, you know, you're going to live and you never know how much you're going to need. So you never really know these things. So he was hoarding it all up. And you know what God said to him? That very night his soul was required of him and said, you fool. You fool. How much money do you need in your bank account? See, that's what, that's what Solomon's saying. How much do you really need? How much do you need to trust in all of that? See, because the damage occurs when we rely on our wealth. The damage occurs in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that whole section, deals with the damage that occurs because he says, I instruct those who are rich in this world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God but on God who richly supplies us with all the things to enjoy. The problem that Solomon saw in his own life is when you have a lot of money, when you get to that point, guess what you start trusting in? You start trusting in your wealth. And you know what he says? Look at this. And then he lost it all from a bad investment. And he didn't have anything to support his family with. He was emotionally destroyed because he had it all planned out. He had his one year, his five years, ten year financial plan. He had it all planned out. He trusted in his riches. And you know what God did? He pulled the plug on it. You know why he did it? To help him to see that there's only one person in this whole world that you can ever trust. And that's God Almighty himself. When you trust your bank account and your checkbook and your house and your, in this and that, I'll guarantee you it's all gone. You know, it's, you know the irony of America, and it will kind of wrap all this up, but the irony that I've seen as we've had the opportunity to travel to a lot of different places, the irony of the United States is this. 
we have a false sense of security. We believe that if we put our money in bank accounts that are insured by the government, yeah, see, we giggle now, but we never did before. It was always like, the United States government, yes, indeed. You know, we, we believe if we put money in bank accounts that are insured by the United States government, you follow this? That we have nothing to worry about. When all over the world, there are revolutions that occur at any moment. See, and the irony of all that is, guess what could happen someday? Hey, and, there, and, and it's wise to do that, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. But I'm just saying, you know what could happen someday? Someday this country could have a revolution, and all the money that you put in your bank account, and all the land that you own, and all the possessions that you have, a tyrant government could come in and say, it's all mine. It's all mine. And you know what will happen to the majority of Christians in our country? We will suffer the greatest spiritual defeat that you ever saw. Do you know why? Because we never believed God when God said, don't trust in the uncertainty of riches, but trust in God. I don't know where you've got your money and how secure you think it is, but I'll guarantee you based on the word of God that it's the most volatile thing that you'll ever put your trust in. It'll be gone. It'll be gone in a second. And the problem is that we don't believe that. I like how one guy said, he goes, the national debt is $700 trillion. You know what that means or whatever? That means that there are enough people out there who are still willing to loan us money. Now stop and think about this for a second. If I loan someone $700 trillion, I'd get to a point of saying, hey, I'm sorry, man, but you know what? I need to see a deuce or something in return, you know, to show that you're going to have some good faith paying me back. I mean, think about it. How much are you loan somebody? You know, you got somebody in your family, you loan them four, five, six, hundred, seven thousand dollars, eight thousand dollars. I mean, what point do you get to say, hey, you know what? I got to see some good faith here. So you think you give me like a hundred back in return, you know, every now and then show that you're willing to pay it off. So that's how crazy we are. It's like, oh, dude, people are willing to loan us more money. Hey, I don't know. I don't think I'd have a whole lot of faith in that. And wealth can cause, number four, spiritual defeat. Wealth can cause spiritual defeat when we don't rejoice in what God has given us. We don't recognize that God is the source of everything that we have. And when we don't realize our future is in the hands of God. We need to stop putting our trust and faith in our bank accounts, in our property, and in our portfolios. And we need to just lay it all aside and say, Lord, how do you want me to use it? Because this is a test. For the next 60 years or however long God gives you, you know what he's saying? This is a test. I'm going to use money in your life to test you to see if you believe what I say is true. This is a test. For the next 60 years, every dollar that I entrust into you, I'm going to see if you really believe me or not. I'm going to see if you're going to meet the needs of the poor. I'm going to see if you're going to take advantage of the position that I give you in the business that you're in. I'm going to see if you're willing to share with those to, to whom I've given you so that you can give it to them, so that they can see the love of Christ in your life, so they don't see that you're hung up on money, so that they can come to know the Lord because you use a stupid thing like money to get people into the kingdom of God. And if you don't think that's biblical, listen to this. You know what Jesus said about money? He says, I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the mammon of unrighteousness. Money. Listen to this. That when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unfaithful also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? Man, you know what I see by that? You know why God doesn't bless you more 
and, and help you to, 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 to grow deeper spiritually and to walk closer with him. You know why? You know what's happening? You're failing the test. He's saying, if you can't handle money, how am I going to just pour all these other greater riches into your life? You know what he said about money? It will fail. Money will fail. That's what it is. The message all throughout Scripture is money will fail. You can't take it with you. Money will fail. It's a test by God to see whether you believe Him or not. Do you believe Him or not? Do you trust Him or not? And how do you demonstrate it? Every dollar you get goes to yourself, to your needs, to your material desires, to your kingdom you're building here on earth. Are you willing to use that which God gives you to be used by God to draw people to Himself? Man, this is tough stuff, isn't it? In a society that's so materialistically oriented, what percentage of your income goes to meeting the needs of those who are less fortunate than you are? Have you capped your living off yet? There's everything more, more, more. You see, senor and senoras, the color of the devil in our country is green as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for the truth of your word. God, help us to believe you. Help us to see that if the wealthiest man that you ever placed on this earth came to these conclusions inspired through your Holy Spirit, there is a lesson in there for each one of us. God, help us to see how deceptive wealth is, how it creeps in and it gives us a callousness toward others that are less fortunate than we are. Help us to meet the needs of those who are oppressed. Help us never to take advantage of our position to pervert justice and righteousness according to your word. God, help us also not to profit from our position. Lord, we just pray that we'll not trust in wealth and the, the uncertainty of the riches of this earth so that we'll be set up for a great disappointment and tremendous spiritual defeat, but that we can use the resources that you've entrusted to us for a short period of time to draw people to Jesus Christ, that they can see the love of Christ in our life because we're not hung up by money. We're not hung up by wealth and material possessions because we realize the temporary nature of all of it and that it's all going to be left behind when you call us home. And it really doesn't matter how much is in our bank account because he who has the most toys doesn't win in your kingdom. God, help us to realize that and to become more sensitive on a practical way to sit down prayerfully and consider how we can help meet the needs of those who are less fortunate. God, may that be a burden that you place on every heart of those who love you and want to walk in obedience with you as they leave here today. God, may they never rest, may they never sleep until they catch the depth of these spiritual riches that you're willing to offer to each one of us. And we just pray that you can use these resources to further your kingdom, that you could draw people to Jesus Christ because of our simple obedience so that when it fails, and it will, that we can welcome those who you've used to draw to yourself, that we can welcome those in heaven one day. And we just praise you and look forward to that day with much anticipation. And we just ask you now to bless our time, to bless your words, and to soften our hearts. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.